Chapter the Thirty Second of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Evening, indoors and out. The two miles and a half long procession was not the only popular demonstration which made the coronation of George the Fourth memorable in the annals of Manchester. There were no telegraph wires to flash intelligence to the supporters of Queen Caroline that she had been repulsed from the abbey gates, and driven thence to die, broken-hearted and uncrowned. So, in the absence of a cause for indignation, loyalty or its substitute contrived to add a pendant of disorder and excess, only to be recorded as the dung-heap out of which grew flowers of promise. As in most of the private houses along the line of route, a cold collation had been prepared for the refreshment of the friends who crowded Mr. Ashton's open windows. But no calculation had been made of the space the unwanted pageant would cover, or the time it would occupy in passing, and Mrs. Ashton, having discovered that sightseeing in the dust and glare of July was parching and fatiguing, issued orders for tea to be handed round when the last banner had disappeared, and before her less intimate friends should rise to depart. In giving these orders she unwittingly stirred the kitchen fire into a white heat. Lavish hospitality was a characteristic of the time, and when a family of good position professed to keep open house, it was generally equal to the most extravagant demands. As a rule, Mrs. Ashton had little leaning towards impromptu parties, and Kezia considerably less, preferring those grand and formal receptions which involved elaborate preparation and placed imaginary feathers in the caps of mistress and maids. Kezia herself considered the honour of the house, involved in everything under her control, being in apple-pie order, and the surprise which put her on a metal put her also in a fume. Recalled from the window, whence her head had been poked far as the farthest, to provide tea in its concomitants for an indefinite number of strangers, she accompanied her erratic movements about her domain with explosive outbursts of spleen at being taken unawares where nowt's ready to hand. Here's missus been an ordered tea for the old boiling of folk upstairs, and theer Sicily and t'other wenches are gog oath crownation, and not worth toss of a pancake. She jerked out her anger in the ears of Bess Hume, who seated on the settle had just lulled to sleep Mrs. Wormsley's crying baby which, neglected by its gaping nurse, had commemorated the day by a fall from a high bed. Bess made a temporary couch for the baby in a snug corner, and quietly came to Kezia's assistance. Then Ellen Chadwick, intuitively perceptive of kitchen troubles, busied herself in bringing reserves of china, glass, plate, linen and sweetmeats from closets and storeroom. Cicely and Dolly came down in due time, and the credit of the establishment lost nothing in Kezia's hands, even though there was an additional influx of visitors, and a supper also to provide. That was Mr. Ashton's affair. He had tired of his processional march in the broiling sun by the time they had skirted Ardwick and defiled into Chancery Lane. The two friends by his side, Mr. John McConnell and Mr. John Green, both cotton spinners with whom he dealt, being of the same mind, they had fallen out of the line in Ancoats Lane, and turned down Canal Street to the house of the latter, to refresh themselves with something less dry than snuff or road dust. Mr. Green was the uncle of Henry Liversiege, the artist, 
fragile of form and spiritual of face. But the latter was then only a genius in his nineteenth year, with fame and an early grave dimly foreshadowed. They found him on the doorstep with his fussy and fidgety, though kind-hearted aunt, just back from Mr. Gore's in Piccadilly, whence they had seen the show. The gentleman's requirement, a draught of ale, was soon supplied, accompanied by a spasmodic comment on the grand display, and the exhibition of a pair of the loyally inscribed fillet she had secured as the smallware weavers passed. "'By the by, that was a wonderfully effective banner of yours, Mr. Ashton,' interposed the thin voice of Liversiege. "'Who painted it?' "'A young fellow in my employ, who occasionally designs for us,' answered Mr. Ashton, handing his snuff-box to the group in rotation. "'Quite a self-taught artist. Indeed, it was not much like an amateur's brush.' I should like to know him. You see, I do something in that way myself. The young painter, conscious of his own latent power, was sensitively alive to undeveloped art in another. Would you? Just so. Then you shall. Come along, all of you, and finish the day with us. Mrs. Ashton will find us a dish of tea, and I'm sure, Mrs. Green, she will be proud to see you also. Turning to the gentlemen, who had by this time emptied their tall boy glasses, he added, and I think I have a few bottles of rare old port waiting among the cobwebs for us to drink the king's health. It was a period of much pressing and many excuses, but the excitement of the day had so far destroyed ceremony that even Mrs. Green, who was somewhat punctilious, after a little nervous trepidation anent the fitness of her last new cap for company, consented and accepted the arm Mr. Ashton gallantly offered to pilot her across the crowded street along which the tail of the procession had only just trailed. Graciously, though with her natural stateliness, Mrs. Ashton received the newcomers. Mrs. Green, finding the company generally in morning visiting dress, was at ease about her cap. The tea was exhilarating, the viands toothsome, the wines excellent. There was one common topic for discussion. The ice of ceremony had thawed hours before, and genial Mr. Ashton, having locked the doors to prevent the escape of a guest before the supper he had bespoken was demolished, was thoroughly in his element. Mrs. Ashton was not quite so much at ease, though she was too well-bred to manifest a disquiet, which had two sources. In the first place, the presumptuous salutation of Augusta by Lieutenant Aspinall had jarred a sensitive nerve. In the second, Mr. Ashton, generously impulsive, had introduced Mr. Clegg to their friends, and as a friend of whom he was himself proud. She thoroughly appreciated Jabez, and equally contemplated his advancement, but she was for making no more haste than good speed, and considered it more prudent to raise him by insensible degrees. And as she watched her husband, radiant with goodwill, cross the room with Jabez, discomposed at the very doorway by the wondering eyes of Augusta, and present him to Mr. Green and Mr. Liversiege. Thus ran her thoughts. "'Dear me! William is very inconsiderate. He will turn the young man's head and insult our visitors at the same time. I hope Mrs. Clough will not recognise him. How indignant she would be if she thought we expected her to associate with one who once wore her son's cast-off clothes. Certainly he is well conducted and worthy in all respects, but people don't forget such things.' If Mr. Green and Mr. McConnell only knew William was introducing our blue-coat apprentice, what would they say? 
I'm glad, however, to see young Mr. Liversiege so affable with Jabez. To her surprise, at this juncture, Mr. McConnell drew his chair close to Jabez and Mr. Liversiege, and attributing the evident embarrassment of the former to the newness of his position, endeavoured to dissipate it by taking part in the conversation, to which Mr. Green occasionally added a word. The lady, who was so afraid of touching the dignity of her friends, had not heard her less exclusive lord whisper to the two cotton-spinners, "'I'm afraid I've committed a grave misdemeanour in Mrs. Ashton's sight by bringing young Clegg among our party, but kings are not crowned every day, and I thought it a good opportunity to bring a worthy lad out. You and I,' and he tapped his snuff-box, "'know what Manchester men are made of, and that young fellow has good stuff in him. He was made to rise, sirs.' Mr. Ashton's friends nodded in acquiescence, and willing to humour their kindly host, and perhaps desirous to test the calibre of an aspirant so introduced, wittingly or unwittingly did their part in helping him to rise, by the very distinction of their prolonged attention. It was an act quite in the way of John McConnell, who had already given a lift to his rising young countryman, Fairbairn the engineer. Presently Mr. Chadwick, beckoning attentive Ellen to his side, and using her shoulder as a support, involuntarily seconded his brother-in-law by joining the group, and putting out his hand to Jabez, who rose at his approach and offered his own seat to the paralytic gentleman, said, "'What interest you so much, Mr. Clegg, that you forget old friends?' "'No, sir, I'd not forgotten you, nor Miss Chadwick either,' Ellen coloured. But Mr. Ashton, having honoured me with an introduction to Mr. Liversiege and these gentlemen, bowing to them, I was not at liberty to break away, had I felt so disposed. "'We were discussing the influence of art on our local manufactures,' added Henry Liversiege, and thereupon the subject was resumed. Ellen, necessarily in close attendance on her father, standing there with sparkling black eyes, an animated and attentive listener, well pleased at Mr. Clegg's merits, as seen by her, had at length found recognition. Meanwhile Augusta, the centre of a group of young people, indulged in sentimental chit-chat, and trifling with her fan and human hearts, completed the enslavement of her last admirer, a fair-haired Mr. Marsland, while Jabez, from his distant seat, looked and longed in vain. Cards were, as a matter of course, proposed for the amusement of this extemporised party, and in filling up tables for whist or loo, Mrs. Ashton's fears for the sensibility of her friends were forgotten. They were utterly put to the rout by a loud rat-tat-tat at the street door, followed by the entrance of Mr. Clough and the Reverend Joshua Brooks, the latter less vigorous than of yore, but in a state of unusual excitement. His loud voice was heard before he was seen. "'Hogs, sir, hogs! They are no better than hogs, sir!' he was saying even as he came into the drawing-room. He appeared too much ruffled to respond composedly to the kindly greetings of his many friends. Even Augusta, who put forth her little white hand with her most winning smile, attracted no more attention than a hurried, "'How do you do, lass? How do you do?' "'What is the matter, Mr. Brooks? You seem—' he interrupted Mr. Ashton's inquiry with, "'Matter, sir! Waste and riot! Intemperance and indecency are the matter!' These old eyes have seen that which is enough to bring a curse upon the coronation, and a blight upon the town. Conversation was arrested. Flirtation forgot its part. 
cards were laid down, save by three or four inveterate players, and young and old were alike on the qui vive, crowding round the speaker. "'Permit me,' said Mr. Clough, commencing an explanation. "'I suppose you are all aware that the new market in Shude Hill is the chief station of the nine appointed for the distribution of meat, bread, and ale to the populace.' "'Populace, indeed! The very scum and dregs of the town! Say, rather, the lowest, roughest rabble!' broke in old Joshua. "'Well, Parson, for the credit of our working population, let us hope so,' chimed in Mr. Clough, resuming. "'Whilst Mr. Brooks and I were at tea in his sanctum, Tabitha ran in breathless to tell us that the platform erected for recipients in front of the storehouse had given way, that several persons were injured, and one had been killed on the spot.' "'Ah!' said the parson, said the parson, drawing a long breath between his teeth, while Jabez, unobserved by either, drew nearer to listen, and the ladies put up their hands in horror. It was not our most direct route, but either curiosity or compassion took us round by Shudhill Market on our road hither, and never shall I forget the scene we witnessed. Loaves and junks of meat were being pitched high and far amongst the crowd from the warehouse doors and windows, as if flung to hounds. "'Hound, sir!' burst in impatient Joshua. "'Don't slander the better animal. "'Only the commonest curs would have yelped and scrambled "'and struggled and fought for their rations, "'as did the human beasts we saw clutching and gripping "'from weaker women and children, "'that which had fallen within their reach, "'or trampling in the mud underfoot "'the food they were too greedy or too drunk to devour. "'Aye, mud, for the very kennels ran with ale "'thrown in pitchers full amongst the people.' to be caught in hats and bonnets and hollowed hands, as if it were rain in an African desert. Ale! The atmosphere reeked of ale! Men, women, and children of all ages carried it away, or drank it from all sorts of vessels, reeled, hiccuped, and staggered under their burden, or sank down by the wayside, whilst others, shouting like maniacs, drained the half-empty mugs. I tell you, sirs, Captain Cook never fell in with greater savages. Even death and disaster in their midst had not awed them. Ugh, I say again, they are hogs, absolute hogs. As Joshua paused to take breath and sank into a chair, Jabez modestly put the question to the excitable chaplain. Do you not think the distributors are most to blame for this wanton waste and excess, to say nothing of the loss of life? Surely the arrangements of the committee must have been defective. The parson's harsh tone softened as he put out his hand to grasp the speaker's. "'Aye, Jabez, lad, is that thee? I'm glad to see thee here,' and he laid emphasis on the word. "'Aye, the distributors are answerable for—' But the personal recognition had created a diversion. The question Jabez had mooted was talked over by separate knots of individuals in different quarters of the large room, whilst Mr. Clough, to Mrs. Ashton's amazement, yes, and gratification also, shook the salesman warmly by the hand, and congratulated him on his apparent success. Moreover, he bore him away to Mrs. Clough at the loo table, and called her attention to the change time had effected in the old tanner's foster-child, in the most cordial manner. Thanks to Mr. Ashton, Mr. Clegg had truly got his first foot into Manchester society that coronation day, and his old hopes might have revived, had not a disturbing element crept into the room during the denunciatory oration of his clerical friend. John Wormsley, not finding his wife at home when released from yeomanry duty, had come in quest of her, 
bringing two of his comrades, and when Mr. Clegg retired from the loo table with a bow, his eye fell first on the conspicuous figure of Captain Travis in the silver and blue glory of uniform, bending deferentially to address Miss Chadwick, and in another moment on the elegant Adonis he had dragged from icy death, toying with Miss Augusta's carved ivory fan, and whispering low to her, whilst she hid her Indian muslin robe and too eloquent face behind the screen of her convenient harp, and drew her flexible fingers lightly across the cords. The lustre of that evening's introduction was dimmed for Jabez. Augusta scarcely looked at him as she brushed past to supper, leaning on the arm of Lieutenant Aspinall, her white dress in strong contrast to his dark uniform. And no doubt his pain was pictured on his face, for Ellen Chadwick sighed, as she too passed him with her martial cavalier, and half turned to look pitifully as she went. There was no lack of ladies, so Mrs. Ashton paired Mr. Clegg off with a chatty damsel of thirty or thereabouts, and he did his best to listen and make himself agreeable. But not even the novelty of his situation could keep his thoughts or his eyes from wandering where they should not. Along the whole course of the procession, the Manchester Yeomanry had been greeted with more hisses and groans than cheers. This had chafed their noble spirits, and on disbanding they had sought consolation in the wine-cup, which temperate Jabez was not slow to observe, although their degree of exhilaration was not then considered a disqualification for the drawing-room or for the society of ladies. Mr. Ashton's strong home-brewed supper-ale was not a sedative, yet still Augusta smiled on Lawrence in spite of her mother's frowns, driving Mr. Marsland to desperation and Jabez to despair. Indeed, he was glad when the repast was over, for then Joshua Brooks rose to depart, sober as when he sat down, and the Chadwicks also. He had thus an opportunity of escaping from his torment by offering his escort to tottering Mr. Chadwick and the parson in succession, if the latter did not object to the slight detour. Jabez foresaw that Mr. Travis was ready to do Miss Chadwick's suit and service, but in offering his arm to assist the slow feet of the disabled father, he little dreamed how gladly his daughter would have made an exchange. Nor, had he been wiser, would he have thrust himself in Big Ben's way, any more than would Mrs. Chadwick, who openly favoured the personable and unimpeachable captain. End of chapter the 32nd